Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everyone, on a warm and sunny December 8th, at least in California. Uh, Yesterday, uh, we did a wonderful show uh, on the Middle East uh, with Kim Khatas, the author of a a best-selling book, Black Wave, about the misfortune that has um, uh, engulfed the Middle East. She begins her book with a wonderful phrase, or a rather depressing phrase, actually, which uh, many people throughout the Middle East have asked themselves over the last 40 years. What happened to us? What has befallen us? Why, um, why has this happened to us? Uh, Hatas uh, lifts the veil, if you like, on the Middle East. Today, we're getting a lot more personal. We are shifting from the Middle East to the United States. And rather than focusing um, on a whole nation, a people, a geographic area, we are focusing on a family. Um, Robert Kolker, Bob Kolker, has, has written a, a very profound book. It's a bestseller. It's on everyone's list for one of the best books of 2020, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. So whereas Khatas unveils the Middle East and the mind of the, the, the Middle East, so Kolker does it for the mind of a particular American family. Uh, Bob Kolker, uh, Welcome to Keenon. This family in your book, Hidden Valley Road, is a very unusual one. Tell me about the family in Hidden Valley Road, this, uh, this family whose mind you unveil, reveal in this astonishing book. Thank you, Andrew. I'm really pleased to be able to talk with you about it. Uh, this is a, a, a real American family from uh, the 1950s, they they had 12 children that spanned the baby boom perfectly. The oldest was born in 1945, just as the war was ending, and the youngest in 1965. And then in the late 60s, the oldest sons start to get sick with really mysterious symptoms that end up being diagnosed as schizophrenia. And by the early 80s, six of the 12 children were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And then the scientists stepped in to try to study them to find the genetic roots of schizophrenia. I decided after meeting this family and learning about what they went through, that this was more than just a case study book, more than just a science book. This was a family saga, a multi-generational family saga, and a very emotional one at that, where uh, the entire foundation of the family seemed tipped toward the subject of mental illness, but the children who were not diagnosed, their lives were forever changed as well. And uh, it also is a story about children growing up and reevaluate their parents' decisions because the parents come under the microscope a great deal. And it's about the trajectory of scientific research and how it's not always a straight line and how little we still know about schizophrenia and how much this family 
paradoxically has contributed to our, our understanding of mental illness. You you do a masterful job, uh, Bob, weaving, as you say, these two narratives, this very personal, tragic uh, narrative of, of uh, and, and at one point somebody says, the most mentally ill family in America, whether that's true or not, there's certainly one of the, the, the most mentally ill families in, in America. And this story of schizophrenia, you, you go back to Freud and Jung, and then you follow up with a much more contemporary evaluation. Very briefly, Bob, tell me in your mind what schizophrenia is. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, for, for people watching, we're on the NIH site. And there are quite a lot of references to, uh, to, to organizations like the NIH who are struggling, as we all are, to define what schizophrenia is. It's interesting that you mention NIH because about 10 years ago, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, which is the subset of NIH that would focus on schizophrenia, on his way out the door in his exit interview, he published a paper saying that we shouldn't even call it schizophrenia at all. You should uh, come up with many different discrete names for discrete areas of symptoms. But to answer your question, schizophrenia is a classification uh, of symptoms. It's not something like COVID-19 that we understand at a molecular level and can look at and know what it is. It is a term we give a bunch of symptoms that people have. And so with six Galvin brothers all diagnosed the same way, they actually present differently. One has delusions and one is more catatonic. One has hallucinations, another is paranoid. Uh, it, it really runs the gamut. And um, while it's useful for clinicians to classify them that way, it's a moving target. And every four or five years or 10 years, the definition changes considerably. We may 40 years from now really have six different discrete brain conditions with different names and the name schizophrenia might not be in use at all. Uh, Bob, we've done a number of shows about the crisis in America. Uh, what happened to us could indeed be a phrase, and it is, I think, a phrase that many Americans are asking about themselves, about the crisis in America, the economic crisis. We we covered a wonderful book called Milltown about the economic crisis of small town America, American dreams, the death of American dreams. We recently had Tom Zollner on the, uh, on the show, who's written an, another wonderful book about the National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America, which to some extent is an America of crushed dreams and madness. It's all too easy to read your book, your narrative, as a metaphor about what's happened in America. This all-American family, this incredibly good-looking, muscular, healthy, at least externally healthy family that, that suffered this, this, this plague of madness. Uh, is there something in that? Is that one of the reasons you chose this project? It certainly wasn't lost on me that not only did the children span the baby boom, but the first severe difficulties happened in the late 60s and early 70s, just as that period of American confidence and post-war prosperity was giving way to, to uncertainty and insecurity and, and inward uh, reflection and crises and violence. Uh, and assassinations. So you, you, I, I couldn't escape that metaphor as I was writing. And I did want to write a family story overall. I, I should say though, that there's something hopeful in this particular family story too, because despite it all, they actually remain a family. One reason why I could say 
they may be the most mentally ill family in America is because other families in their shoes might never have remained together. They might have been cast to the winds or, or homeless. And, and so while they certainly are um, more than just a symbol, they are the, are the embodiment of American confidence that becomes undermined by uncontrollable events. Uh, there also is a very human story here as well. And I, I didn't want to hit the be on a soapbox too much. I really wanted this to be an emotional human story. Well, you can let me do the soapboxing, Bob. That's what I'm good at. I couldn't, I, I couldn't <laughs> do a professional job with you standing back. Um, but certainly, it, it's it's unavoidable, that, that part of the story. Very briefly, and, and everyone needs to read this book, but very briefly, tell me about the parents. Uh, because again, they seem to epitomize all the strengths and particularly weaknesses of America in the 1950s and 60s? Sometimes when I think about them, it's interesting just how on the nose they are if you think about them as, as embodying their time. I mean, uh, they, they met during the Great Depression as children. They fell in love as high schoolers. He went to war in the Pacific. Uh, they married in, you know, before he was shipped out. She was pregnant while, you know, became pregnant right as he was on leave, uh, by the time he comes home, there's a son. And then those 12 children are born during the baby boom and he stays I in the military. Right? It certainly is one of the reasons why they have these insane amount of children. Yes, yes. And, and another reason is that they enjoy the distinction of it. They move out to Colorado from New York. Colorado's a bit of a backwater back then. They sort of stand out socially as they're the family with the 12 children. They're the model family with the 12 children where all the boys are altar boys and star athletes and good looking um, and musicians as well. And, and the, their mother in particular took great pride in how accomplished the family was and still did actually, you know, when I met her just a couple of years ago was very, she said, we were a model family and other, used, other families used us as right. an example. And the idea of the model family is, is again, a very powerful metaphor. They, one of the early homes they live in is one of the model family homes in, was it Levittown, this appearance of normality, this appearance of happiness. And of course, as, as you pair this away, what we find is madness. This, this disconcerting, this remarkably vivid contrast between appearance and reality um, it comes out, of course, in the photos and in your text, which is hard to represent in this, this conversation. How did you deal with that? Or how do you deal with that as a writer? This, this, this almost uh, absurd, surreal contrast between normality, this externally healthy, happy, good-looking, huge American family, and a family which in reality is actually insane. Well, there are enough mysteries in this book about the science of mental illness and about what uh, about different people's opinions about the parents and 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 all sorts of different unanswered questions that I I felt no need to be cryptic or or overly rhetorical in talking about the family itself. I, I was trying to be clear and unfussy about it. I didn't want to say you know it was the American dream that turned into the American nightmare, or I felt no need to play it up that way. And mm. and it's uh, there and it's unavoidable. Yes, yes, it's there already. So why hit the gas on it? And and then also I um, <laughs> you know I I tend to be a non-judgmental uh, and intimate reporter that who tries to get uh, walk a mile in the shoes of everyone I write and supply their rationales. My general worldview is that 
with very, very few exceptions, we're not talking about good guys and bad guys or heroes and villains, that everybody is a little of something and everybody feels as if they have a reason to do what they do. So when characters, or I should say real people, clash in, in a nonfiction book, it, it's for really very realistic reasons. And I try to get to the bottom of those reasons. I don't feel like I'm a referee or a policeman when I write a book like this, or a prosecutor for that matter. I'm really trying to be more inside it than that. What did you learn from the book yourself in terms of the narrative of the family? You've obviously done a huge amount of research. It's, it's a wonderfully researched book. It's so well researched. It doesn't seem as if it is researched. It's that kind of book. And your, non uh, uh, yeah. and your, and your nonfiction style is, is masterful. Uh, but how do you think differently now about the family than when you began? I think in the beginning, I, I when I was talking with the grown-up children who are now in their fifties and sixties and early seventies, the they ones would that say things. At least the three yeah, of them are yeah. dead. Yes, exactly. Three, three of the mentally ill ones are deceased, and and then three are still surviving, and then there are six undiagnosed, you know, well children who are around. In talking with them, they each, to different degrees, would judge their parents for this or that, and. In the beginning, they would say to me things like, oh, there was lots of denial in our family and our mother made a lot of terrible mistakes, but our father, he was perfect. And then, at the, then as I spent a few years with them and kept coming back and talking and talking, the picture changes a little bit and you realize that the mother actually has some very redeeming qualities, that she's the reason the family stayed together and was able to contribute to scientific research and, and any number of other positive things she did. And the father, of course, no one can stand on a pedestal for long. There's all sorts of truths and revelations about him that come out later in the book. And, and I, I appreciated those kind of surprises as I was going through it. And then, of course, there are secrets that the parents kept that were only uncovered by medical records that, with the help of Lindsay Galvin, the youngest of the children, uh, I was able to, to go through and find out new information that really changed the way that they felt about some of their sick brothers entirely. Yeah, your your point about the father again. I was guessing that he wasn't quite as perfect. I, I I'm not sure if you let that slip, but it seemed fairly obvious that he wasn't the perfect, upstanding military scholar that he represented himself to the world. And if if there is a category that comes out of this book really badly, it's it's maleness. Here we have a picture of the, the some of the younger boys. You call them the hockey boys. Some of them turned out to be crazy rapists. Uh, sexual criminals of one kind or another um, has some, and, and again, I, I'm going to generalize here, Bob, because I'm allowed to. You can tell me that I'm I'm I'm, I'm being rather uh, simplistic. But to what extent does your book uncover in this journey inside the mind of an American family the crisis of American maleness of masculinity? Well. The, the boys all misbehaved from an early age. Violent. Uh, I mean, still it wasn't a... just being naughty, right? They were criminals. Right. They beat each other up. So it's an open question whether this is an early signs of mental illness in some of them or just denial at work among the parents who were 1950s parents and thought, well, we shouldn't coddle them. They need to learn to stand on their own two feet, let them sort it out amongst themselves. Boys will be boys. That kind of masculinity concept that that you're speaking about really was a part of this family. And regardless of the reason, 
things got out of hand and and there was abuse among the brothers at a very young age. And I think that that uh, can't help but you know color everybody's feelings about their childhood moving forward. There's one brother who said he couldn't wait to get out of there, that he just, he left home as he could because he was caught in the crossfire of two other brothers who turned out to be, of course, mentally ill a couple of years later diagnosed. So you, what you see is, um, a mix of toxic masculinity that's unpoliced or unregulated and um, undiagnosed mental illness. And are they connected? Well, I think that that the, the real emphasis today is on early intervention. They're connected to the extent that nobody looked at what these boys were doing and said there's a problem. Whereas today, I think it would be a little bit different that the, the drugs aren't necessarily better for schizophrenia these days. Um, but uh, early intervention is highly valued now. And someone like Donald Galvin could have gotten help at age 15 instead of age 25, and he would have been spared 10 years of, of real damage. One of the striking things, though, I thought about in the narrative is that there is no happy scientific ending. We don't have a, as with COVID, we don't have a vaccine on, on the horizon. Um, and you do a great job describing the, the the medical disputes and debates and controversies about schizophrenia. But are we any nearer figuring this thing out than when Freud was uh, was making sense of it in in sexual terms, and Jung was 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 publicly rebuking rebuking Freud on that? Are we are we better off now scientifically in terms of figuring out schizophrenia a hundred years after the Freud Jung disputes? Well, the good news is we have full and complete confirmation that there's a genetic element to schizophrenia, which is something that the debate raged about for a good hundred years. And now that we've sequenced the human genome, we have evidence that is really irrefutable. So we have we all have sort of a ground we can all walk on uh, that is a common ground in thinking about schizophrenia. The bad news is is that the Human Genome Project was not a silver bullet; that it did not find one naughty gene that we could medicate and fix and then cure mental illness forever. It turns out it's far more complicated than that, that it's it's not just a matter of zapping a few genes and making it better. And and now we have to go back and, and the nature nurture conversation shifts again to, are we really just inheriting a vulnerability toward developing schizophrenia? And if so, is the environment, is nurture still a player? Um, could a, a crisis in your childhood, like child abuse, for instance, or drug use, or any number of triggers, be the incipient moment that that actually uh, triggers that vulnerability? Just as the book is implicitly, at least, I think, a critique of American masculinity and the crisis of what it means to be an American male, it's also a, a, quite an uplifting book, I think, about women. Uh, here we have the, a, a picture with one of the brothers, uh, one of the, one of the, the crazy brothers of, of the two younger sisters, the 11th and 12th children in the family, who turn out to be, if there are heroines in the book, it's certainly the, the youngest daughter and even the, the 11th uh, child, the, uh, the, the oldest daughter, um, seems to try to make sense of this. But neither of these uh, people are afflicted in any way with, with schizophrenia. Tell me about these two women, Bob. I think their stories are both inspiring and they are separate stories, which is interesting to me. In the beginning, I thought the two youngest sisters would be, the story would be about two sisters who, you know, supported one another and made it through 
a difficult childhood together, but instead I got something more complex and more real really, which was two uh, young women who processed similar traumas differently and came away with different lessons from it and and came, both came back to their families on their own terms and 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 dealt with it in different ways and then but also they both did a lot of work to move through their trauma there, there's a lot of sad stuff in this book but there is some scientific hope at the end through the family but there's also some i believe some inspiring lessons to be learned by how people make it through some of the worst situations in life i think there are a lot of fiction and nonfiction books that that I think people read for this reason, that they aren't just there to rubberneck or to be voyeuristic about a tragedy. They're, they're there to, to scan it for tips on how to deal with, with the worst in life, because we all know that, that, that no one escapes tragedy in life, and, and we don't talk about it much explicitly. So we can process these things through, through um, exemplary families like this one this family became exemplary in that way to me how uh, how does the his um, in terms of schizophrenia how, how does the breakdown affect men and women is it fairly balanced uh, be, it, because get, that, given the story that you know these 12 children 10 boys six had it and ne none of the girls um and 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 the mother didn't have it either, whereas it seems as if the father certainly was depressed and had some mental issues of his own. The, um, uh, the data show that men have a slight edge, but nothing terribly profound. And that was a surprise to me because I, I had a, I sort of been going around in life with the assumption that it was far more many men than women. In this family, it's only the men. And so you, one can surmise that whatever is happening genetically with them is something that, um, that doesn't activate in women or or is avoided altogether in women. However, one of the one of the surprises toward the end and one of the breakthroughs is that a very likely genetic abnormality uh, that 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 all of the sick children inherited came from the mother's side of the family. And so the plot thickens a little bit and yeah. it's not a sex dependent gene either. So it's it's um, it could just be the roll of the dice or it could be that whatever the Galvins have, it only only materializes in men. And her family, the mother's side of the family, was particularly interesting, particularly wealthy and distinguished and troubled as well. Um, Bob, you begin the book with this wonderful image, troubling image or two, uh, of, of the falcon. Um, uh, this was a family that, 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 that prided itself on its falconry, if that's the right word. Why did you choose that? Uh, image. Uh, is there something, again, metaphorical in the way in which we cruelly tame these birds and the way in which um, uh, the men in the family seem to enjoy this pastime? Um, Don and Mimi Galvin, the, the mother and the father in the family, moved to Colorado in the 1950s from New York and knew nothing about Colorado. And Mimi, in particular, was appalled to be in in uh, sort of a, a country, she she really wanted a life in New York, and and very shortly after arriving there, they encounter falconry. They meet people who are falconers, and um, it's interesting to me that they run to it, and and that it it is one of the most difficult things you could do as a hobby. It's not golf. I mean, you, you have to, you know, lure, trap, and then spend every minute of every day for hours and weeks domesticating sometimes in a very cruel fashion, a, a very wild bird, until finally it does everything that you want it to do. And to me, that 
that was a um, unavoidable metaphor for their outlook on life. The, these were two very optimistic, almost triumphalist American people coming out of World War II, raising a family with the air, you know, tied to the Air Force, you know, the, the source of, of world domination, uh, not just American supremacy, but world supremacy. And, and they were engaging in this activity that helped them feel as if they do everything right and work really hard, then good things will happen to them. And I yeah. think that extended to their, their view of raising children. And, and it certainly um, hurt them in the long run when unavoidable and uncontrollable things started to happen. Yeah, so uh, you're more metaphorical than sometimes it seems, because I think that is a very powerful image, the idea of mastering this bird cruelly, but they couldn't, of course, do it with children. And interestingly enough, as parents, they seem to just give up. Uh, the, the eldest was a model, and then he was probably the biggest catastrophe of all in terms of mental illness. And the younger they got, the more they gave up. So perhaps it's no coincidence that the younger they became, the less likely they were, they were to be schizophrenic. Did, what, I don't know if you have any children, but did this teach you anything about parenthood? Do you have children? Yes, I do. I, I think, you know, in first hearing about the Galvin family story, I thought a little bit about American pastoral, which follows the same timeline. You have this perfect American family that, that, that explodes and crumbles in the late 60s or early 70s, just as the counterculture is rising. And I think that the lesson I took from that book is that that terrible things sometimes happen and you it, it's almost a Job experience that that there's no, it's not, it's not that you're being punished for hubris, it's that it's that you no one here gets out alive. Like we're, we're, we all are going to run into this. And I think if there's a mistake the Galvin's made, it's that it's that they had the same wishful thinking that so many of us have. And uh, I, I don't believe they are really that different from so many of us who look at our children and think of all the wonderful possibilities that could be. And then if there's some bad news, you try your best not to think about it because you want a better story for your children. Yeah, I know as a parent of uh, teenagers and kids who have just graduated from college, the, the culture of therapy is, seems to be much more embedded in in in, in that generation, in um, in Gen Y, in, in teenagers today, and, and people in their twenties uh, than it was in our generation. So I I wonder whether that's a good or a bad thing. Certainly, so much has changed. Um, when I was when I was very much younger, you know, bipolar illness was called manic depression, and and of course there was a value judgment placed on it, and then it became you know, bipolar illness, which was entirely medicatable, and people could talk about their family members having it in a way that they never could talk about it before. And then like dominoes, anxiety and depression, and then autism also became something you could talk about. I grew up with families who had autism in their families, and they never spoke about it, whereas now people talk about it all the time. And and I, if this book can be part of a conversation that that helps schizophrenia come more out of the shadows, then then I would just be overjoyed. Bob, it's a very visual book. Your first book, another bestseller, another wonderful book, Lost Girls from 2013 has already been made into a, 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 a movie, a, a television show. Um, I'm guessing that the, the movie rights or the television rights to this book have already been sold. 
How would you represent this on screen? Would it be a, a family version of being John Malkovich, this journey inside a fam, uh, an American family's mind? I think if I had my, uh, my preference would be for, a, for it to be a very, uh, very rich and emotional family drama. Um, where if there's if there's science, it 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 comes in in a very sneaky, undemanding way. It doesn't feel like you're being made to eat your vegetables, and and that there wouldn't be fantastical, um, John Malkovich type being John Malkovich type of stuff. It would be a little bit more straight and realistic because I think we have enough of that now in our culture that kind of others the mentally ill in that way, and that there wouldn't be necessarily a need to do that here. Again, if you have a family with twelve children and six of them are are mentally ill, I don't think you have to dress it up or, or use any CGI or anything to make it seem um, more than what it is. It is enough. It is quite enough. I don't want to bring this up, Bob, but I have to. Uh, the T word. Um, it seems to me, at least, and maybe I'm a bit biased, I'm certainly a bit biased, that the, the current president, uh, Donald Trump, is insane. I don't know whether he's bipolar or schizophrenic, but there's something wrong with his mind. Um, and indeed, the best book on Trump, I think, and the best selling book is by his his niece, Mary L. Trump, Too Much and Never Enough, which is a, 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 a psychological interpretation of a psychotic man. How should we make sense of the Trump presidency in the context of your book? Is there is there a connection or are the two things entirely separate? I think the, the only overlap, if there were a Venn diagram, would be this this uh, this this sense of exceptionalism, of American exceptionalism, of of of, of um, perfection, uh, of of being unable to admit anything might be awry. Um, he, whatever mental issues he has, I don't think it's schizophrenia, but 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 for him to stand up and talk about injecting bleach uh, to fight COVID nineteen, or or to go to a bunch of scientists and start talking about how he had an uncle at MIT and how that makes him smart, I mean, there's something narcissistic going on there in a in a very malignant way. Of course, I say that with absolutely no medical training, but that's just one guy's opinion. You're allowed to be biased on this show, Bob. Mm -hmm. um, the, the cultural background to the book is indeed of the of the counterculture of the 60s. This family grew up with the 60s as the background and much of their behavior with drugs and sexuality reflects that. We had Bob Putnam on the show uh, last week who has a new book out about this shift from the we to the I to the we. Putnam is very critical of, of the 60s and of the counterculture. Uh, it, does Putnam's is Putnam's thesis? Do you think strengthened by your book? I would probably the I would probably take exception to the fact that the '60s were this great, you know, moment of narcissism. I mean, you could argue that the '50s were a great moment of narcissism. It's not like everybody decided they were a big happy community in the '50s. They were pointing fingers at one another and turning in communists and 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 deciding that everyone was uh, homogenous. Um, that homogeneity and community are two very different things. Um, but in general, uh, I think I, I would certainly place a value on community as uh, over the individual. And I, and I, I love working on longer nonfiction books like this, that, that connect readers with a part of the world that they might not otherwise get to see. Um, I love the family story, but I also love how 
how um, perhaps more people could get to know a family like this who might otherwise not. And the same with Lost Girls also. It, the, those were five families that were in a part of America that most people, including the media, weren't paying attention to. And, and to put the lens on, on those families in a, in a way with a, that had a compelling narrative in front of it was very fulfilling for me personally. Well, everyone certainly needs to read Hidden Valley Road inside the mind of an American family. It really is uh, a journey inside this unique, troubling, and also in some ways inspiring family. They also, of course, need to read uh, your earlier bestseller, Lost Girls. Bob, in addition to your two books, Essential Reading, you're like all of us stuck at home. I'm in Berkeley, California. You're in Brooklyn, New York. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Um, I've been catching up. <laughs> I read I read My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Mopshe, which I thought was excellent. And then I read Swing Time recently by Zadie Smith, which was just sentence to sentence, just beautiful writing. And then in nonfiction, I there's a new book, The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel. I don't know if he's been on your show. Yeah, he's been on the show. So. Yeah, I, 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 that helped me understand a little bit more, more clearly what's been happening in the country. And then I read Ed Young's book from four or five years ago about the microbiome. It's called um, I Contain Multitudes. Ed Young, such a great journalist writing about COVID-19 now, but he wrote this book about, about microbes uh, out in the world that really was a great introduction to that subject for me. And of course, I Contain Multitudes is the is the first song on the latest Dylan album, which is another subject altogether. Robert Wilker, <laughs> Bob Culper, real, real pleasure, honor to have you on the show. Wonderful book. Congratulations. And congratulations also on all the prizes and, and, and acclaim for the book. It's, it's richly deserved. I'm really overjoyed and overwhelmed by it. But thank you very much. Thanks. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.